<laughs> so I was trying to figure out what the, the, the script that was spinning in my mind there as I was reading the gospel was um, had a lot to do with explaining a wardrobe man malfunction that I had uh, before I came up. I, I stood up and my, my mic pack, the battery pack, fell to the floor and I was trying to get it back on my belt and got all these layers on and it probably popped off because I ate way too much turkey. turkey. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Which is why I said turkey during the golf. <laughs> I just, I cannot, you know, every once in a while, the, uh, uh, like a verbal foible like that is, is just out of the blue. Every once in a while, something just makes perfect sense. Like I, there was a typo, I don't know if you got this, in the, um, in the, the hymn that we sang. And be thyself the king of peace, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It said, and said, it said, and by thyself the king of peace, which is true. <laughs> Jesus, by himself, is the king of peace. So, you're, I mean, Great. we're I like sometimes. Yeah. Well, okay, enough of that. The psychological thriller Memento, I don't know how many of you have seen that, it's an older movie now is a story of a man who, as a result of a significant trauma, suffers from the inability to form any new lasting memories. He's desperately searching for the person who attacked him and killed his wife. And since he can't remember anything new for more than a few hours, he's using an intricate system of Polaroid photos and tattoos and post-it notes to help him remember what he's learned from one day to the next. The film begins quite dramatically with the Polaroid of a dead man obviously shot. Then the sequence plays backwards, the, the photo fading to its undeveloped state and then actually re-entering the camera to the time before the man is shot. The story then restarts, building up to a conclusion you've already seen but have not yet or have yet to fully understand. That's Advent. The first Sunday of Advent is always about the second coming of Christ and the day of judgment. A kind of shock to the system after a few bloated days of turkey football and now online shopping, so we're not even walking it off anymore. The other three Sundays in Advent refer to the end of time, but they're mostly about the prophecies of the coming Christ. We read about Mary, Joseph, and the angel Gabriel. We also get a dose of John the Baptist, fire and brimstone and the end of the world. Advent is four Sundays leading up to Christmas, a time of expectation. On one hand, it's about preparing for the first Advent, for the first coming of Christ as an infant in a manger. On the other hand, it's about the coming of Christ at the end of the age. And during Advent, Christians are called to take on the spiritual disciplines of fasting, prayer, study and almsgiving meant to make space in our hearts and souls for the coming of Jesus. There's an advent wreath in the sanctuary, a circle of three purple and one pink candle with one larger candle in the center, the, th the four candles on the outside representing the four Sundays of Advent while the white candle, the Christ candle, is for Christmas. Purple 
is the color of Advent being symbolic of both royalty and repentance. It is a penitential season, both celebration and lamentation. The coming of the king is both a regal, glorious celebration and a time to prepare for his righteous judgment. Advent is the beginning of the church year. And so the story restarts, building up to a conclusion we've already seen, but have yet to fully understand. It's how Christians have marked time since the early 300s AD. And in his insightful book, For the Beauty of the Church, David Taylor, writing about how the church keeps time, said, if the church doesn't tell us what time it is, the surrounding culture surely will. And we usually end up all the worse for it. And this week's lectionary readings all center on time. Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, begins with the statement, it shall come to pass in the latter days. It's an expression that points to a future beyond the horizon, which most times for Isaiah points to the messianic age. New Testament authors use the various Greek translations of the exact phrase, usually rendered as in the last days in the firm belief that Jesus inaugurated his messianic kingdom by his resurrection. And so now the latter days have arrived in a decisive way, and we are living in them now. While at the very same time, the latter days await their complete realization in the final fulfillment at the end of the age. There's tension there because it's both arriving and awaiting, uh, now and at the same time, not yet. In Psalm 122, then, David speaks of time in all three of those tenses, all three tenses. He begins by remembering, they said, let us go to the house of the Lord, an invitation to go up to the city of Jerusalem for worship and it's written in the past tense. It continues from the perspective of having arrived in the present when he states, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. It also hints at his anticipation of the future. David's, I was glad, was fulfilled as he drew near and saw the city, took joy in it, and prayed earnestly for it. And what is David praying for peace, shalom in Hebrew. Shalom is a, is a complex word that our word for peace cannot capture. It's not simply an absence of conflict as we think of peace. Shalom is true human flourishing in every sense, emotional, spiritual, physical, psychological. It's what we naturally long for, and it's the promise of the kingdom of God. This is significant because it's the very same word, shalom, in its Greek sense. It's, it's the very same word that Jesus uses in Luke 19, 41 through 44, as he weeps over Jerusalem. And when Jesus drew near to that city, it says, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known the things that make for peace. 
But now these things are hidden from your eyes. Now this city will be destroyed to the point that no, not one stone will be standing on the other, which literally happened less than 40 years later. Why? It says and tells us in verse 4, these things are now hidden from their eyes because of their own blindness. They don't know the times. They weren't prepared for his coming. Compare that to the reading from Romans 13, verses 8 through 14, where Paul insists that is not the case with us. We are to know what time it is and that the hour has come to wake up from sleep. He's not talking about staying awake when it's time to go to sleep at the end of the day. Rather, he's talking about waking up early and engaging in daytime behavior while it's still dark. And most people think it's still nighttime. Think about it this way. It may be nighttime where you are, but in the east, it's already broad daylight. If you were living in Annapolis, but doing urgent business with someone in London, you would want to know if they were at their desk at 8 a.m. waiting for a call from you. And if you really wanted to get that deal done, you darn well want to get up at 3 a.m. Annapolis time in order to call your colleague in London at 8. The day is at hand. That's the image. You have to live by what time it really is. We live in a different, we live by a different calendar. This time is indicated by the new day that dawned at the, at the incarnation. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. New creation has begun. God's wisdom has been revealed to a world still sunk in folly and darkness. God's glory has shone forth from the cross and is already at work by the Holy Spirit in and through believers. We're to live in the present in light of God's future. Because the future has come into our present. And by his spirit, that future is already at work in and through us. And we're not only to be citizens of the day, but heralds of its dawning, promoting and proclaiming the gospel, seeking the true flourishing, the shalom of our neighbors. We're to be waking the world up to tell them and show them that the new day has dawned, the new year has dawned, the new time is here. And not only heralds, but agents whose righteous lives in some mysterious way mysterious way hasten its coming paul knows what time it is it's time to wake up and live in the light of what god has done for us it's doing now what it's doing now among us and what it promises for the future in a world that's living in darkness it's time he says finally the gospel reading, Matthew 24, 29 through 44, in contrast to some Eastern religions that view time as an endless cycle of birth, death, and rebirth, Christianity with its Jewish roots is deeply historical. Our history has both a beginning with God's creation of the world and an ending with God's judgment and recreation of it. We look backward remembering God's redemptive acts over the generation and forward anticipating the vindication of God's ways in a new heaven and a new earth. But we live 
As theologian Karl Barth said, between the times. And the season of Advent challenges us every year to consider afresh the character of our existence here. On the one hand, Advent reminds us of God's promises to Israel of Emmanuel, God coming in human flesh to deliver the world from sin and evil. And on the other hand, it calls us to anticipate and prepare for the day Emmanuel will return as King of kings and Lord of lords and will put all that resists him, even death itself, under his feet. Living between the times, we give thanks to God for the first advent and incarnation, even as we plead with God to realize once for all the kingdom that Jesus declared to be at hand. This passage in Matthew is part of a series of sayings and parables about a day of judgment that will inaugurate this kingdom to come. Jesus warns them all that this day will take the world by surprise. Not even the angels nor the son of the son know the day or the hour. The point being that we must be ready for the Lord at any time. When he finally appears, those who are ready will be saved and those who are not ready will perish. Jesus reiterates these themes in three parables in the chapter following this one. In Matthew 25, the first tells of ten bridesmaids who wait for a bridegroom. When he finally arrives in the middle of the night, he receives the five who wisely kept oil in their lamps but shuts the door to the five who foolishly let theirs run out. The second tells of a master who, leaving on a long journey, entrusts his servants with money. When he returns, he commends two, two servants who made wise investment, but <coughs> pardon me, wise investments, but condemns the one who only buried his portion in the ground. The third parable, like the first two, warns of a day of judgment that will divide humanity into two groups. The sheep who fed and clothed the least of these also fed and clothed the Lord unawares. The goats who failed to feed and clothe them, failed to feed and clothe the Lord, also unawares. All three parables explicate the point in Matthew 24, 44. You must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Christians have long debated when and how this day of judgment will take place, some working to understand and synthesize this and other apocalyptic passages throughout the Bible have developed very specific and intricate systems and timelines for when and how this will happen. Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists, that's the group that they would fall in. They have very specific timelines. I grew up in a faith tradition, dispensationalism very specific. Some, on the other side of the spectrum, see basically all biblical prophecy as already having been fulfilled, and therefore uh, prophecies of future final judgment are symbolic and in some ways irrelevant. Anglicans don't have a specific system, but we recognize a mysterious reality, and it's it's comes at us through the collects and the readings through this time of Advent. And there are basically five points to this. Like good reformed people, we have five points. <laughs> First one being this. 
there will be an end to the world as it is. Two, we are living in the last days and have been since Christ's resurrection. Three, we cannot know when the final day will be. Four, we will be judged. Five, it is only the grace of Christ that can render us not guilty. <laughs> Any theology of a coming judgment can only be faithful to scripture, however, when it reminds us that Christ the King, who we celebrated, the celebration that we had last week, who judges us, is also the Christ who willingly endured judgment for our sake. That God's judgment never contradicts his grace. And that the readiness with which Jesus calls us to watch is shaped not by fear of the future, but rather by gratitude for the flourishing and abundant life in the kingdom of Christ that he offers us today, right now, and into eternity, which has already begun. It's a little bit mind-bending. But to live between the times is to trust and hope that God has begun and will continue to transform us more and more into the image of Christ in whom all of God's mercy and steadfast love, his hesed, his hesed love becomes abundantly manifest. And to invite everyone around us to share in that abundance. Advent calls us into the ongoing history and mystery of relationship with Christ who is there, glad to be with us, whichever way we turn, whether toward the past, the present, or the future. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.